Welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. Chris, it is a new movie. Um, what did you choose uh, to torture us with today? Well, Dan, uh, I wasn't too sure on this choice at first, but the more I learned about it, the kind of more sucked in I got to the story behind this movie. It's called The Little Things, and it was released both theatrically and on HBO Max simultaneously this past Friday. And uh, yeah, it's one of those films where, you know, I heard it's a crime movie. It's uh, got Denzel in it. And I easily could have brushed that off. But then the more I learned that this was a movie that was kind of stuck in development hell for a better part of three decades... And that seems like it's right up our alley, since what we do here at Films Trace is trace the life of a film. And we've talked a lot about, I feel like we've maybe overused the phrase gestation period on this show, but this is this is what it's all about. What the heck happened? Well, I think, yeah, I think you make a really good point. Like, we, we kind of go back and forth between movies we think we're going to like and not going to like. But, like, at the end of the day, it's stories like this or films like this that are really fun to talk about. Because you get to talk about the background of how a film become, comes into being, which is kind of what this is all about. Yeah, we talk about how what people think about it and its cultural importance. But a big part of why we do this is to sort of really talk about the production aspect of it. How do you go from an idea in your head to you know a 30 million dollar budget and all these people involved in a huge premiere and millions of people seeing it I mean, it's a really fascinating process and with the little things too it's especially fascinating because you have a lot of sort of big hollywood players here you know you got denzel washington involved you get some newcomers like rami malik uh and kind of what is what what do you call jared leto what is is that like a hanger on like i don't even <laughs> yeah, know I like that hanger on hollywood wallflower <laughs> yeah he's just there sometimes <laughs> sometimes he's doing music sometimes he's doing whatever um he isn't i, I will say this uh denzel washington rami malik jared leto all academy award winners for acting Yes. Um, which, you know, I think Denzel's probably the only one among that group that really deserves it, but um, neither here nor there. Uh, and anyway, so, you know, this this movie, you know, John Lee Hancock, who is, I don't think he's a well-known name. Would you say that he's a well-known name? I don't think Absolutely that he is. Absolutely not. But he's done a lot that you probably heard of, though, mm-hmm. right? Like, he wrote Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, not the book, but the script, the adaptation. He directed The Rookie in 2002, Alamo. I don't remember that movie. Um, I kind of remember remembering that movie, if that makes sense. Um, he did The Blind Side, gross. Um, <laughs> Seven White and the Huntsman, he wrote. Saving Mr. Banks, the founder, which is... Which is a movie that I think should have got more hype than it did, but for some reason didn't really get the Oscar buzz that it yeah. probably was going for. Uh, Highwayman, which I think every male above 65 and white in America has seen on Netflix. I've watched like half of it. Uh, that's all I could get through. Um, but, you know, he's he's kind of uh, he's been a journeyman director and writer, essentially. He's a really much the epitome of an insider. And this is a script he wrote back, what, in 1993, he says, I think he registered yeah. it. Um, so this thing's been around for a while. Why do you think, you know, kind of to think about the conception here and, and who else is involved? Why do you think it took so long for this thing really to to take off? You know, it's interesting because it seemed like this was gunning for a theatrical release traditionally, right? Pre-pandemic. Um, 
and uh why you know it suddenly came out of nowhere like it did seem like maybe you know he got a lot of eyeballs on the highwaymen last year and maybe uh and that was he was director only on that one and director only on the founder in 16 so you know he hadn't really been doing his whole writer director thing like that kind of fell apart it seems um shortly after the blind side and he kind of became kind of that uh, that cemented him as that Hollywood insider type. Um, but then when uh, the success of the streaming film, the highwaymen with Kevin Costner happened, it was him reuniting with uh, the star of his initial breakthrough film, a perfect world back in 93, which I would say is probably still his best film. Um, I'm not sure. Have you yeah. seen that one? I, I saw it a long time ago, but I remember like, you know, that it's a, a pretty decent movie. Yeah. 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 But once again, like he, he's, he does, he doesn't really he doesn't really play with like extraordinary. He he's very much feels no. like he's uh, a Clint Eastwood contemporary in that sense where it's kind of like he's doing a job and he tries to do it well enough. Um, but uh, I don't know if it was just like he got a little bit more cachet with the success of the highwayman. And so he was able to like kind of go back into the drawer, so to speak. It seemed like Scott Frank played a, a big role in uh, making him dust it off and then getting Denzel interested in the lead role. It's one of those things where it's, you know, a confluence of events, but probably the most fascinating thing about this movie is, uh, you know, you think crime movie and it's not based on a true story or anything like that. Uh, If a movie languishes for so long, you'd want to update it, but that basically would just completely tear apart the crux of the film because it takes place or it was, and it was written pre, you know, DNA, uh, used as a a marker of uh, solving the mystery and uh, that basically relegated him to you know either scrap the thing completely and turn it inside out or just make it set in the early 90s before dna became a a common way of uh, catching criminals so it's 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 a it's a very strange thing because it says it's takes place in 1990 it was written in the early 90s and yet uh there there feels to be little to no reason other than plot convenience to have it set in 1990 um what before we get too far dan maybe we should tell the listeners in case you don't know about the little things what is the story that's being told here what's the crime the central mystery I'm reading this plot. I don't know where he got this plot from, but I'm going to read it. Uh, Deputy Sheriff Joe Deke Deacon joins forces with Sergeant Jim Baxter to search for a serial killer who is terrorizing Los Angeles. As they track the culprit, Baxter is unaware that the investigation is dredging up echoes of Deke's past, uncovering disturbing secrets that could threaten more than his case. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty good plot summary. Um, doesn't give too much away <laughs> not too much away i mean you kind of know what you're getting there's an old cop here there's a young <laughs> cop that dynamic which we all love um everybody loves that sort of team up just like seven um and i mean that's interesting too people bring up seven with this movie constantly mm-hmm. and, and i zodiac. get why right and zodiac yeah because it has like it's the serial killer thing you know specifically seven though because it came out you know in the 90s it has such a 90s feel to it with this one, it felt like there was a moment when this probably should have gotten made in like 1995, 1996, mm-hmm, and there mm-hmm. were all these crazy people attached to it. Steven Spielberg was originally supposed to direct this. <laughs> like he was the guy who was attached to the script. 
But apparently he passed on it because he had just done Sindler's List, didn't want to do something else that was super dark. Clint Eastwood was attached to it. Warren Beatty was attached to it for a while. Danny DeVito, when he was directing, was attached to it. So it definitely had a ton of cachet in the beginning of its life cycle here in the 90s. But for whatever reason, it just never really clicked. And I kind of wonder if it didn't click and didn't get made because I th- the people thought there were problems with the quality of the the script itself because mm-hmm. i think when we get back down to like the release and reception that's going to be like a big red flag that comes up over and over again when people talk about this film and criticisms about it the script just has it has some problems and and some of it is sure related to the fact that it was written in the early 90s and now it's a period piece about 1990 that's very hard to do i feel like um because like does it really call out any any sort of 1990 period piece like are there any flags in the movie besides like pay phones and like well and the only like specific reference in the script was to uh the night stalker which you know okay yeah we'd just gotten caught maybe three years prior 87 i believe and so there was maybe but there it was a very like it was a blip on the radar in the script and i was just waiting for there to be some kind of mention of like maybe the uh, the race tensions in the early '90s LA uh, riots. Oh, some, good point. Yeah, like that to ground it. But there were so many things going on in this film that just kept me forgetting that this was a night, you know, set in 1990. Even down to like the the pretty modern suits that the majority of the characters. Yeah, wore. I would be really interested to see if we got like a younger person, like on like a Zoomer, like under 25, to watch this and be like. When do you think this takes place? Yeah. Like, just give like a scene, and they'll be like, oh, I don't know, 2013. <laughs> like, exactly, because it, it kind of has that feeling. That's a good point about the suits too. Like, they're very well tailored. That was not the case back in the 90s, especially early 90s. Right. Um. You know, one question I have about all this is sort of, you know, it 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 makes sense that it's getting getting made now because there's just this uh, insane demand for content. And like this has just been sitting around and it sounds like I think he did this really in-depth interview with Deadline and they talk about like how it came to be and essentially what happens it sounds like Warner Brothers was interested in doing it. Uh, they sent it around to all the people at Warner Brothers to read. They liked it so much that they were like, hey, you know, we like this enough where we're not going to let it go to another studio, but we might not make it. Um, and then it just sounds like they needed something to do. They needed a, a project to take off. And there's a really funny line. I can't remember what interview it was in, but it was basically like um, Warner Brothers applied for a California tax credit. And like because it went through, they said yes. It was essentially the gist of yeah. how this thing really—that's the actual spark to this movie. It comes down right to off. a tax write-off, <laughs> um, which you know kind of makes sense in the, in the era that we're living now. Where like they just need content to fill up fill up the screen. Uh, they need those HBO Max subscribers. I mean, Warner, uh, Wonder Woman 1984 has been a huge success to get subscribers to HBO Max, and this is—I I believe this is the first. 2021 uh warner brothers movie that is doing this joint release right yeah like that was supposed to be in the theaters exclusively so i think this is the first one outside of wonder woman which had already been announced way before so that was a given but this is kind of like the first one where that and we'll get to all that whole um disaster later on and how this director dealt with it and the actors dealt with it as well um so it is you know one of those um 
multiple releases here in theaters and on streaming um any sort of tidbits from you know the script or anything about the conception that sort of stuck out to you is sort of odd or weird or interesting Uh, just just to piggyback off of what we were saying about the the setting it it was it's one of those films where you you think that it's gonna make the city a character right and (laughs) yeah and i had high hopes to be honest in like some of those opening shots there's some really beautiful like sunset uh uh, time-lapse photography going on um but then they pretty much drop it immediately and you're essentially you know either in like a seedy hotel or at the police department which for some reason has you know floor-to-ceiling windows uh in 1990 and Mm. it just feel like everything feels slightly off he has a quote in that same deadline interview that you referenced hancock uh says um you know it it wasn't the hollywood of today it was a lot more rundown some locations changed because they were real in 92 and now are very gentrified and like that's a whole other issue that it seems strange for him to even bring up in the interview because there's the you know the the classic like even like bordering on 80s or 70s style you know like a hotel run by the hour with like a grate at the front desk and prostitutes um outside where it's like it it seems like that's the only place where it's taking place in the past but it's also like not even quite 1990 like it's shooting for like 1981 or something i don't know yeah he 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 tried to do something he talked like that divide between the valley and east la Mm -hmm. and him being from bakersfield i mean he does a pretty decent job of laying that out but like if you don't know la in that area it kind of doesn't you don't know how would you know that right if right? like how would you know about big like you wouldn't really know how close they are he just seems like he's from like general country he's like a country sheriff and now he's going into the city yeah, where yeah, he yeah. Used to work right and um yeah i think there was an attempt I will say there were definitely was an, attempt, was an to attempt to build build that sort of visual narrative geography. Uh, I think it failed pretty poorly um, to to really pull that off. Um, and I think in general, you know, when looking at sort of the script and how he talks about the script and all that kind of sort of stuff, I am really drawn towards his sort of um, insistence and confidence that he was doing something interesting here. You know. Um, and he talks about this over and over again about how, you know, and specifically the ending. Like, if you haven't seen the movie, we're probably going to mention the ending. So go watch the movie, then come back to the podcast and you listen, or just keep listening and spoil it. It's not that big of a deal. Um, the ending of the film, he sort of sees as this really unorthodox thing. And he sort of quotes the, the, the idea that, like, you know, the first two thirds of a detective movie is really interesting and fun. They're, they're searching for the killer, there's clues, and then they find out who it is at the sort of the denouement. And then it's just the rest, like a fight between the good guy and bad guy. And he really goes out of his way to say, no, I didn't want to do that. I couldn't do that. Really. The whole crux of the film was that the ending was going to be ambiguous and it wasn't going to be a good guy, good guy versus bad guy situation. And he also sort of states that if he had done that studios would have made the film earlier. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason that he gives that the, that the script wasn't, hadn't been made for what 30 years now. Um, I don't really buy that. And I also don't buy what he did here was all that interesting in terms of the the ending. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think that he did something here? Well, it's just in terms of the script and the conception of what he was trying to achieve, especially with the ending being ambiguous. Is there something interesting and fascinating there going on? Or is it sort of him 
kind of being pretentious. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's a little of both in my in my perception. I do think that uh, maybe I ha- I have a little bit of a I had a little bit of a whiplash watching this movie because I was so bored by the first two acts um, and pretty much you know just watching it for those nice photography moments or the Thomas Newman score, even though it was kind of all over the place, it was at least nice to listen to. Uh, but then when yeah. something different than what I had expected finally occurred in the third act, um, you know, they kind of pull the rug out from under you. The uh, number one suspect is suddenly killed. And so you don't know if he was actually had anything to do with uh, the crimes that they had been tracking. Um, and then it becomes a question, a movie about, you know, uh, the detectives uh, and whether or not they are quote the good guys, because then they try to cover up the murder of the murder suspect. And like just saying it out loud makes you realize that, yeah, you're right. It's not that interesting, but it kind of tricks you because at least it tricked me because I was at least like, Oh, at least this isn't just, you know, ramping up. It literally shows like has, is a showdown in the middle of the desert uh, where apparently, you know, you can have giant mounds of dirt and get away with murder. But uh, you, you, uh, you end up getting so sidetracked with this new direction the movie takes, at least in the moment. Uh, like I keep going back and forth on it in, in my memory of, uh, uh, revisiting the film. It's definitely one of those movies where I'm like, I'm never going to watch that again, but at least it didn't just, you know, have a rote ending, even though everything before that was rote. And just because it's not rote doesn't make it, doesn't mean that it's interesting, Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I don't know. I think the genre of crime thriller is known for trying to throw you off, mm-hmm. right? That's almost one of the genre conventions is that it's, it wants to surprise you. You kind of know where it's going. You think you know um, who's who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, there's red herring, stuff like that. Um, but then, you know, that gets a deeper conversation about genre. It's like, Oftentimes they will fulfill your expectations, but in an interesting way here, they don't fulfill your expectations. Hancock does not do that. Mm -hmm. And he also does it kind of, I would say in an interesting way. I don't think it's in a very effective way. Um, I can't, I mean, the ending I'm not going to get into yet, but like, (laughs) yeah, I I feel like it was, um, uh, I I don't know. I think there's a lot that did not go well with this movie. Um, the least of all was probably its ending. There's a lot of other things that I think are problematic. But before we get into that, let's talk about like the, you know, this is a character study. Essentially, this is a showcase for actors. So in terms of the production and how they got into their characters, you know, obviously Denzel put on some weight, right? Yeah. He really looks run down. I mean, how much weight do you think he put on for this? Like 30, 40 pounds? Yeah, it seems like it. Um, I love this quote that you, I think you added from Cinema Blend from Denzel. Uh, This is the Joe Deacon diet. Uh, The sacrifices I made for my character gaining the weight that's a piece of cake literally a piece of cake uh eating big late it's not healthy but it works milkshakes were my friend ice cream was my very good friend um <laughs> that's not i mean it's like you know he really went all in and then there's this whole other thing that hancock goes into about how denzel was so dedicated to the script right and adding notes <laughs> and that he was so like into it that he like he gave him an office on the warner brothers lot next to him and they would talk for hours why do you what like i because <laughs> like, yeah. i watched this movie and i'm like and some of the reviewers i think kind of called this out like he's phoning this in yeah like, this is not denzel at all at the sort of denzel though and i i will say this i think denzel is probably one of the greater 
uh, or better actors of the last 30 years. Like he's an amazing talent and he shows up in these terrible movies. Right. Uh, and really hits a home run like every time. Like you like is the Equalizer a good movie or Equalizer 2? No, they're not good movies. But like he does such a good job that, you know, he carries those films mm-hmm. here despite him, you know, spending days and hours talking with Hancock about the script and gaining all this weight, like really to get into it. I think he falls really far short of what this character uh, is doing. I, and I, I don't know why that is. Like, I'm not an actor. You know, I'm not really um, in that field or world. But to me, it just falls. He fell very far short of the sort of hauntedness that is required yeah. for a role like this. And I was really, um, I was struggling during the film trying to figure out if it was Denzel phoning it in or if it was a problem with the script because there wasn't a lot yeah, given to him. Good point. Good point. Um, and also just like you, 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 you have him in that dumpy CD hotel without much of any explanation. And, uh, you know, a single tear runs down his face as he's looking at pinned up photos on a wall. And it's just I mean, like, it's this is... so cliche. Exactly. It's so cliche. It's like, but also, I mean, he, it's, it's hard to tell. It's also hard to tell when Denzel is trying to aim for something understated. Right. Yeah, true. Yeah. And because he's such an over the top actor and you're right, like that's what he's become known for. And it's legitimate because melodrama works in things like Malcolm X or Inside Man. But it it's not what John Lee Hancock is going for here. He wants something understated. If anything, the kind of big performance is supposed to be coming from Rami Malek's character and that's a whole other bag of (laughs) dive into that bag for me because i really (laughs) want to dive into that bag right now um i want your reaction first to his his performance i mean do you well first of all before we get into rami like do you like him as an actor in general i thought i did when i was watching mr robot but anything else that's a good point everything else i've seen him in he's terrible he yeah like mr robot is um i think is one of my favorite tv shows of all time i think he is unbelievable in that role um you know other stuff that i've seen i would agree like i just don't here i mean here i think he is incredibly bad yeah um i don't think that he fits this i think he's completely miscast yes. like and i think you have a quote what's the quote you have here from IndieWire? i think um what he says, uh, Malik saw his character as a departure from the things I usually do. Uh, he's a guy who does things by the numbers until he doesn't. I like to see this crisp, clean, meticulous looking guy start to unravel not only inside, but out toward the end. Yeah. Uh, where does it where did it go wrong? I think we're in agreement that there's probably a miscast here. Definitely. Um, why do you think it doesn't work? Uh, I mean, I think it doesn't work because you've you he it almost feels like there was some kind of inclina- inclination on Lee Hancock's part to do some kind of um uh, almost like meta postmodern play on a lot of these clichés from the yeah. crime genre but it, it, he's just not adept enough he doesn't have his own <laughs> voice enough really because he's kind of been this hired hand for so long yeah, yeah, to really yeah. make that work on any kind of uh, deeper intellectual level. And so it ends up just being like, okay, play it straight and as serious as you can, and then let the script take care of itself. But then the script's got its own issues. And so it just kind of feels, it ends up falling flat all over the place. I mean, I'm trying to think like even uh, like a Colin Farrell or something in in this role, um, how much could he have 
you know, made up for the fact that there's so little on the script. A lot, I feel like. You think so? A lot. I think so, yeah. I mean, like, the script's not good. Um, But it's like, the the script's not good in, I think, kind of the ways that you're talking about. It tries to do something interesting and special and definitely falls short and ends up being very rote, which is trying to do exactly what it wasn't to and being being cliche. But I think if you get a good actor in there... Uh, and give him some room. I, I honestly think that Denzel's performance is so poor because Rami Malik mm. is so poor. I feel like he has nothing to play off of. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that Rami Malik is a best actor winner for Bohemian Rhapsody, we, we don't need to mention uh, it. <laughs> I have to mention it every time. Um, you know, he, he so um, Denzel Washington and Hancock chose Rami Malik together. Like, so they made that choice and said, he's going to be like, he's a good guy. In what world does Rami Malik um, come across as like a straight shooter, uh, up and coming detective? And like, that guy is a by the book guy. That's a guy Pierce in LA Confidential. <laughs> yeah, who exactly. Perfect. Perfect for that role. A very specific kind of like um, vibe to him. Rami Malik has a neurotic vibe. That's not the vibe of an all-star detective. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That, that that makes no sense. And like the problem there is like if and this goes back to kind of like a genre, if you don't buy into certain characterizations and genre tropes, you lose the audience and you lose the sort of foundation that that genre gives you to create a story and then experiment. If you don't have that foundation there, then it's like you can't really do all that much because it doesn't click with people. Um, and I think that's one of the big issues here is just like super, super miscast. I think the casting of Denzel was good. I think his performance is poor and the writing was poor. Uh, Rami to me is so miscast that it almost ruins the entire movie for me. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. What about the elephant in the room, <laughs> Jared Leto? I really am yeah. interested to see how you thought his performance was here as the, the big bad. I mean... Yeah, so he plays the murder suspect that, you know, it's kind of a cat and mouse suspect. game. Suspect. Yeah, and that that's that's the key word, right, is uh, because of uh, the rug that gets pulled out from under you in that third act. Um, I mean, he's he's fun to watch. I'll, I'll give him that. And I think uh, you, we were texting a little bit about the movie, and I think you, you said that he's the best part of, uh, at least among those three central roles. Did I, did I say that? Okay. <laughs> And I don't think I disagree with that, but at the same yeah. time, it's also I don't I feel he's such a weird performer to nail down because yeah, like I just keep tough. having it running through my head. There's this moment during a, what's supposed to be a very emotionally cathartic and climactic scene that just ends with a beat, and then Jared Leto saying "Oh poop," and then he repeats that saying "Oh poop" again. <laughs> <laughs> while they're in the middle of the desert in the middle of the night with like a shovel and mounds of dirt and Rami Malek's all sweaty and it's just it's it's uh I have no idea how to classify or how to like just understand what's going on other than it's just like at least he's he's going for something you gotta give him that I mean I love his performance in this I think it's just wonderful um and that's it's the perfect so Jared Leto is is just like I don't know how you would classify him as a person like he does everything he does music he's a real renaissance man um you know he's he thinks very very highly of himself like he is the paradigm of a head up his ass actor um 
And, you know, he does go all into these roles. And a lot of the times that doesn't work. Like um, Blade Runner 2049, remember that disaster hey. that he he's terrible in that. You're just like, what are you doing, man? Uh, and he's been a lot of stuff. Some of it good, some of it bad. Um, he would, he went for a Dallas buyers club, which I thought he was actually really good at. Oh no. Um, see that, but that's when I think he's like swinging for the fences and not realizing. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I could see how he, I don't know. I just, I dig his commitment and I know that it's super pretentious. Um, but I just, I get like here. He, I, to me, he nails it in the sense that like, the whole point of this character within this script and this narrative world is to be that weirdo guy to throw you off. Yeah. He's there not only to throw off the audience, but also to throw off the characters. And he does that very successfully. And Leto is such a weirdo and kind of a freak of a person that he just he's able to get there very easily and he's comfortable in it. He's comfortable being this absolute off the wall, just nutso. Uh, and to me, it just it, it worked. It, it was absolutely my favorite part of the film because up until that point, I was like, "This is one of the boringest movies I've ever seen in my life." Uh, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like show up until like the midway point. Yeah, he doesn't show up until midway point. I was like, even like the first scene where he's in that like the repair shop and you see him, just like, peeking like, around. Oh. Yeah, like peeking around. I was like, "Oh, I'm yeah, I want more of that. I want more of that vibe." Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think he was fantastic. And, and um, it, there was a I, I, I didn't put it down here, but there was a funny article about how. Uh, Denzel was like kind of like stayed away from yes. Jared Leto on set and was like it didn't want to be around him it just kind of let him do his thing uh, which I think makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of stories what's the story about him in Suicide Squad do you remember this yeah he would like p- put dead rats in people's trailers or something like that yeah he was, he's kind of he, infamous for being a real uh, people keep calling it method that's not method no, he's just being a jerk just like he's just being a complete pranks. asshole yeah. yeah that's not method at all um, but I think to me, that's one of the things that worked of, of the casting and thinking about the production of this, like that to me is one of the things that worked the best here. And I think a lot of that has to do with Hancock kind of like letting him do his thing and guiding him a bit. And even what does let us say here? He'd like, um, he would give, uh, Hancock would give notes between takes. Uh, he was completely open to trying anything and everything that I put in his ear. That's Hancock talking about Leto. Um, and I think that that, that really, you know, um, shows up on screen and kind of in a, in a somewhat of a, a unique and special performance to say the least. Um, memorable for about, sure. At least memorable. Memorable for sure. Memorable <laughs> for sure. What about the release? Like where, how is this thing doing? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, you know, talk about, let's talk about the critical reception. Let's talk about this weird release that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe let's, let's, uh, I mean, just as a quick primer for people that weren't uh, kind of aware of this, um, curveball that came from Warner Brothers and HBO Max. When did they maybe announce this? Like November or something? I want to uh, say it was yeah, maybe around then, like, like November, like yeah, December, somewhere. Maybe there. closer to December. But basically, uh, curveball out of nowhere. They just announced like they're like what eleven movies, maybe mm. more than that now. Twenty it's more. It's the entire slate. I think. The entire slate. They announced a, a small number first, and then they yeah, yeah and then they expanded it. So like basically, their entire plan for the end of twenty twenty and the rest of twenty twenty one is to have these thirty day windows where on release date the movie would be available both on HBO Max for thirty days as well as in theaters, and then after thirty days it would expire. It would only be in theaters, and then it would go through the 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 usual uh, steps of you know eventually making. It way, its way to VOD and streaming. And so the big one, probably the most controversial thing about this choice was that 
the the filmmakers and stars of these titles had no say in the matter. It was yeah. a, just as much of a surprise it was to the public as it was to them. And uh, that was clearly uh, felt by the cast and crew of this movie because, I mean, you can just, just be the way we've been talking about, about how like old school Hollywood it is. It's literally a script from the early 90s. I mean, pandemic or not, it seemed like this was the kind of movie that everybody would just assume would, you know, come out, maybe debut to a handful million of dollars and then slowly fade away. But I mean, there's a lot of complaining that went on, mostly on Denzel's side, it seemed. It seemed like Hancock, he had a quote where he says, like, he's trying to be zen about it. Uh, You know, you can't control it, pandemic and what have you. Uh, Learning 20 minutes before the press release. Uh, And ultimately, I actually, I know I'm curious what you think, Dan. I think they're the better for it. Way more people are talking about this movie than if we had waited a year until the pandemic died down and it just came out regularly in the theater. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's a couple of ways you look at it, but I think, yeah, definitely, like it's another one movie on HBO Max right now. HBO Max is super happy with its performance so far. Um, so I think from a, just an eyeballs perspective, yeah, it's doing very well. Also, even the box office is not that bad. It's like $4.3 million. Who the hell is going to movie theater? Come on, people. <laughs> Don't go to movie theater. see like, a movie that you could get yeah, free It's on HBO Max. Spend the $12 and watch it at home so you get vaccinated. Um, there's that part of it. But I think um, the weirder part about the whole HBO thing is that like it's clearly a ploy just to grow the HBO Max subscriber base at the cost of a lot of revenue Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and one of the issues here is sort of like why would you put it on hbo max which is how much is hbo max a month like 14 bucks 15 bucks yeah 14.99 i believe so like okay great um why would you put it in theaters and this svod service first why wouldn't you put it on like pvod and Mm -hmm. have people pay like i don't know 15 bucks to see it if you really want to see it for the first couple of months and then put on HBO Max in like three months or whatever. And the fact that they didn't get the okay, especially the legal okay, to do this is like insane. And there's like tons of lawsuits going back and forth. He hung up on the phone and this he says he basically hung up on the phone on these people who told him this. And we're basically like, I, you know, he didn't know how to react, I think, because he was pretty upset about it. Uh, and I think a lot of the actors are upset. And when this happened, remember, all these directors came out and they were livid. Like, Nolan was, like, vicious. Um, And when it's Nolan, come on, he made Tenet. Genius. Um, But, yeah, so I think, you know, it's a really mixed bag. Ultimately, it's not going to make anywhere near the money it would have made if if there was no pandemic and it just got released in theaters. But there is a pandemic, right? So it changes completely. And you're not going to sit on this thing for another year. I mean, they sat on it for 30 years. (laughs) What's another year? Yeah, yeah, that's another year. um, And it really could come out whenever. Like, what if you just held this till October 2021? Most people will be vaccinated by then. I think movie theaters will be somewhat open by then. Uh, It could have opened easily to 20, 30 million bucks. Easily. I mean, Denzel, he can open any movie to like 40 million um and it's so like i think it's a really you know i think they you know it's one of the situations where they wanted to get it out the door as soon as possible and and this is all about growing the subscriber base of hbo max 100 there's no other reason why they're doing this especially for a movie like this um and i think it's going to work so i think at the end of the day it's going to be successful at, at least in that aspect um i didn't like this movie at all i hated it 
Um, <laughs> what did critics think? Yeah, it's uh, it's this is probably one of the lower rated ones we've gone over on the show in a while. Uh, is, yeah. Rotten Tomato all critics score forty eight percent, real score fifty six out of a hundred, top critics forty five, real score fifty seven out of a hundred, Metacritic fifty four out of a hundred. Uh, a sub sixty is just gonna. It's it's yeah. not it's not long for this world, folks. Um, the Rotten Tomatoes audience score not much better. Fifty nine percent real score, seventy four out of a hundred, and Letterboxed score the film nerds, film snobs, uh, fifty four, pretty bad. Yeah, IMDb sixty four. That's your best score. Cinema score of a B minus, which is also still not great, not and good. a Metacritic audience score of a sixty four as well. What is, uh, I mean, it's it, if if John Lee Hanc- Hancock wasn't making it for you know the audience or the producer, he was making it for the critics. So, why do you think, Dan, <laughs> he didn't even score with them? Uh, because it's trite and it's boring, like, it's not an interesting <laughs> film. Uh, they're like, I think just from a script perspective, it is incredibly not good. Um, like this reminds me of a script that I would have read in like an old script writing competition. And you'd be like, wait, is this an actual script? Or are you testing me whether or not to like rate scripts or not? It's that bad. Like it feels like one of those scripts. And like, um, I don't know, like I just, he's in no, he is, he is somebody who, and this is going to sound so insulting, but I don't care. Uh, he is essentially, um, you know, a hired hand director. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he's just there to sort of be on set, uh, you know, you know, eat an, a, a nice bagel in the morning on set and sort of say action and cut and stuff like that. And he just keeps the train on the tracks. He is not a Fincher. Uh, he is not a Paul Thomas Anderson. He is not a Wes Anderson. Like he is not a director that's going to put his stamp. He doesn't. De- I mean, and the question is, what confuses me about that is he seems like he has a lot to say. Because in the interview, I'm reading the interview, I'm like, you're talking about a way better movie than the one that I just saw. Mm -hmm. So, like, what happened between, like, your ideas and your creative input and the actual output? I I kind of wonder if he wasn't sort of uh, ruined to some degree by the system where he kind of understands the studio system, what the producers or the higher-ups really want. And he sort of um, really sands off the edges of his ideas because I I think he's a really smart, creative guy. uh, But this end product is just, to me, it's an apt. It's just like totally flaccid and just not there. Um, And then I think, you know, it's, it's a failure on the critical side of things. And like you said, like you look at the cinema score, which, you know, whatever, it's a small sample size, but like it's worse than all these other Denzel movies like Equalizer, which got an A, or sorry, Equalizer 2 got an A, Uh, Equalizer 1 got an A minus, Two Guns, I don't even know what that is. That got a B plus, Safe House, I have no idea what that is, got an A minus. So he's, you know, he's in no man's land. Right. It's the infamous no man's land where you're trying to make a movie that you think is interesting and cool, but it's not. So the critics and film snobs don't like it. And then it's try, it's not tr- uh, cliche enough to get the masses to love it. So he's he's left where he is, which is a really boring movie. Right. I do want to mention the that Justin Chang, who I think is an amazing film critic out of the L.A. Times, he was one of the few critics to give it a positive review. Um, the quote you put in here, Dan, uh, I liked a lot, actually, even though I don't yeah. agree with it. He wrote, and while Hancock's movie may not 
look at first like a hollow retread, I'd describe it as more of an unhollow retread, a movie in which even the horriest looking conventions have an undertow of a real feeling. It induces the strange sensation of encountering cliches before they were cliches, of opening an unusually well-preserved time capsule, or ta- taking a trip down a corpse-strewn memory lane. We talk a lot on the show about, you know, movies as time capsules, especially when we look at older films. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that's another reason why I was drawn to the movie in the first place is because I think there is there are a lot of us out there especially of a certain generation that really long for the kind of you know Morgan Freeman kiss the girls type movie <laughs> but with some maybe a little bit more substance and it was just like there it wasn't either it went through too many edits or not enough maybe both in on different pages and uh it just doesn't quite it doesn't quite hit that mark um I think it's it's interesting too to put it in um sort of context of what we've seen on television yeah because like the 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 crime thriller in television has really uh taken off over the last decade and you look to something like a true detective i was constantly um, thinking about true detective while this yeah and like you know have you seen all three seasons yeah so okay. i mean it, it's got the la setting of season two and it's got like the morose journeyman main character of season three so it's missing essentially what made true detective good in the first place in my opinion anyways which is the first season of just like the you know kooky pretentiousness yeah no totally but i think there's just even in like season two which is universally uh derided and i did a rewatch it's not good um (laughs) and uh but it it did la way better than this movie i'll tell you that much i mean la was really a character in that in season two but I think the tough thing about that is, you know, ever since season one of that, which was what, 2014, I want to say, mm-hmm. um, something like that, uh, it really, I think it changed people's perception of the crime thriller and what it could be. Like that first season was a very mm, existential sort of macabre, um, just a really well written and well produced and amazingly acted season of television. And then you kind of relate the vibe of that. Like I'm thinking about like the shootout scene in um, the the sort of housing projects in season one. Really riveting stuff. Like just like amazing. Yeah. And then you compare it to this movie. Was there anything in this movie, a single scene in this movie, that got you even halfway there of that scene in True Detective season one? No, it was not a set piece driven movie, which is perhaps yeah. another reason why it also like... <laughs> felt more at home on a streaming service than in the theaters. I maybe would have been even more disappointed if I had paid eight bucks and not really got any thrills uh, with the Denzel movie. Yeah. But it does. The one thing it did remind me of are those nineties crime thrillers Yeah, and not the great ones. It's not a silence of the lambs. It's not a seven, but it does kind of feel like something that would be released on, um, you know, on, on a weekend in the movie theaters. Uh, I can't even think of an example. Like I'm thinking like the one that came into my head is like the pledge. Do you remember that? That was oh, like yeah. 2000. Jack Nicholson. Um, yeah. yeah. Jack Nicholson, you know, haunted cop by the past, uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, it does kind of feel in that realm, but that's 20 years old. Right. And I don't know this, this film just felt so um, as a Dowd said, well, I'll read that review. Uh, did you, you added this one, didn't you? I yeah. Think, I like this one too. Uh, to enjoy the film on its own cookie-cutter terms depends on finding pleasure, guilty or otherwise, in tropes recycled with a total straight-face conviction. 
or maybe to crave comfort food of a variety, Hollywood doesn't churn out quite as frequently as it used to. And it's a very good point. There is a comfort food aspect to a movie like this with Denzel chewing the scenery. Uh, Rami Malek is sort of the upstart actor trying to do something interesting and fast. I mean, what would you, is he the Brad Pitt here, I guess? Right. Um, and then the weirdo character actor and freak Jared Leto, just, you know, doing whatever he can do to freak you out. Um, so there, there's, there's definitely parts of it that I thought were, What's interesting about it to me is I liked so much about this movie except the story. And to me, without that story being good and engaging, the rest of it just feels like um, a disassembled puzzle at the end of the day. It just doesn't come together at all. Um, And, you know, what? uh, kind of another question I have for you, Chris, is thinking about like crime thrillers and stuff like that does do you think this movie kind of fails because it's out of time uh, and out of place and it never could have worked um or do you think it's more sort of structural or just writing and stuff like that i mean it it was definitely something that was plaguing my mind while watching it It was constantly waiting or trying to find a reason for it to be in 1990 besides the dna plot convenience um escape route basically uh and so that kind of did hurt and maybe that would not have been anywhere near uh the front of my mind if i was actually watching this in the 1990s um but on the other hand it does seem like there's so such deep structural problems with uh not just you know the the story and characters and tropes and ropeness of it all but also specifically with like the amount of talking that happens between characters that feels like it's for a reason and then when the rug gets pulled out from under you it, you realize there is no reason and maybe that's part of what john lee hancock is going for to kind of signify maybe he is trying to that's his spin like his mainstream spin on existentialism but it's never it's never uh, cohesive enough to really to land so ultimately i think my answer to your question is no i don't think this could have worked even in the 90s it would be at most forgettable and at least now with the way it's being released and with it being kind of a curio locked in a cabinet script that at least gives it something interesting to think about even if it's frustrating yeah and i think the real question is like how will we've already seen how audiences are reacting to it sort of um on like an audience score but when you look at the popularity of it, and you look at even the box office of it, it's working, right? It is a film that is going to increase the HBO Max subscribers by a lot. Uh, it is a film that is going to make some money at the box office when no money, no movies making money at the box office. So even I would say the weird part about that is uh, a substandard product uh, at the end of the day can be successful if it just has some of the right pieces there. It, do, it doesn't have to come together. It doesn't have to be even good. It right. just has to draw, draw your attention, which it did for me too. Like when this first got announced, I was super stoked. I was like, Rami Malik, Yes, I love him. Denzel Washington, sure, he's awesome. Jared Leto, what? This sounds great. Like, it sounds like a really <laughs> interesting fun. And then it's from Warner Brothers, so you know it's like a big budget thing. Um, But it doesn't really click. It doesn't come together at all. It's, you know, the the script is is trite beyond belief um but none of that matters 
because when you have certain names attached and a certain production and look to something, it will be successful financially, which is probably one of the more, you know, frustrating things about the movie industry is that you can get it sort of right with the right people, the right name on it, and it's going to work. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the double edged sword of a movie like this. Um, I don't think it's great, but I think it's going to be, it's a good product at the end of the day, which is the most capitalist thing I could possibly (laughs) say. (laughs) Uh, any closing thoughts on the little things that you want to sort of close us out with? Um, I, I, I think, uh, we've, I think we've said enough and I'm very interested, uh, to, to already start previewing, uh, absolute stone cold classic maybe the best movie we've ever covered on the podcast which you picked for us to look at next that is a crazy i like that lead-in uh so it's the 40th anniversary of michael mann's thief uh which came out in 1981 uh streaming on hbo max we are going to sort of uh talk about that one next week i'm excited another i didn't realize we're doing two crime movies Mm -hmm. back to back but it'll be a good sort of uh way to sort of play them off of each other i'm super excited about it michael mann's one of my favorite directors Music by Tangerine Dream. Come on. James Gone. I can't wait. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, Any event, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, Little uh, Little Things is playing now on HBO Max, so do check it out if you want to be bored to death. Uh, This has been Film Trace. Mm -hmm.